The Book Thingo podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and the cult of the author. This is episode 37 featuring C.S. Bacat at the Australian Romance Readers Convention in Melbourne. Book Thingo would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We also acknowledge the contributions of Aboriginal Australians to our shared literary heritage. Welcome to the Book Thingo Podcast, talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thingo Podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thingo Podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthingo.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. I am super excited to introduce today's guest. You might know C.S. Bacat from her guest appearances on the ABC's The Book Club or her numerous appearances at writers' festivals. But for many romance readers, our introduction to the amazingness of C.S. Bacat was through her Captive Prince series. If you're a Captive Prince fan, we talk about what artifact you might need to produce to declare yourself a true fan. Also, if you have created fan art depicting Captive Prince characters and baked goods, please send us a link to your work. You can find information on all the books we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 37. So thank you for joining us at the Book Thingo podcast, um, C.S. Bacat. Thank you so much for having me. We've spoken on a podcast before a few years ago in the Heart to Heart podcast. That's right. For Penguin. So I wanted to ask you, how has your writing life changed since then? Because at that time, your first two books had just come out from Penguin and you were working on your third book. Yeah, that's right. Wow, it's, um, it feels like everything has changed in that time. So since then, um, the third and last book in my series came out and I feel like the change is one of completion and moving on to the next project, which is super exciting. So are you, do you still feel tied to the world of the captive prince? Yeah, I will always <laughs> love that world. <laughs> you, so uh, I guess this is my roundabout way of asking if you'll write any more stories set in that world. Um, I have a series of four short stories that are coming out, or a couple of them have come out and two more to go. And I'm, I might tinker here and there in the world in the future, but for the moment I don't think there will be any more novels set in that in that world. I also wanted to ask you, that book started as serial fiction. That's right. Are you still writing serial fiction? Uh, no, I've made the transition now. And I really learned during writing book three of Captive Prince that serialization has its limitations. You can't look at the manuscript as a whole. You're always writing in part and moving relentlessly forward. And um, when I hit book three, it was uh, much more technically demanding than the first two books and I had really needed that time and space to work on it as a whole. And so that felt like a real privilege and I really want to be able to kind of take that time and work to that technical level in future books as well. So I might move back to the serial format sometime in the future but, but not, not in the immediate future. So what are your plans, your writing plans in the next year or so? So uh, I'm working on a young adult series, um, but if anyone who follows me will know that I'm fantastically slow. So that is um, 
It's still in the development stage and I'm hoping to start writing manuscript for it this year. Um, and I'm also working on, uh, let's say, a secret side project, which I can't talk oh about. <laughs> Torture, she's torturing us. <laughs> so, your, so the Captive Prince series had a lot of themes around gender and identity and roles of power. Mm. Are you going to be exploring similar things in the YA series or is it something completely different? Uh, yes, those are the themes that really fascinate me. I'm really interested in gender and playing with gender constructs and, um, and playing with identity and I guess just playing with kind of set stereotypes and, and roles as well. So I want the YA series to have at least somewhat of the same feeling of both intensity of, between, of relationships between characters and some of the, um, what I experienced writing it as some of the freeness of Captive Prince to go to unusual places. And is it going to be contemporary or it, will it have speculative fiction elements it's as well? It's got some fantasy elements. Okay. Yeah. Now, in the intervening years since our last chat, yeah. you've been to writers' festivals, you've done media appearances. Your connection to the Australian literary industry, has that changed? as a result of being published in print? Uh, yes, it's changed dramatically. I was, um, so as you know, um, my book started out as an online serial and first was self-published before it got picked up by Penguin. And, um, and so I feel like I've, I've sort of passed through the door into commercial, the world of commercial publication. And I've, I've been surprised at the, the change in perception of my work that's happened since it has been commercially published. I feel like um, perhaps there's still some lingering s stigma that remains, unfortunately, around self-publishing. Publishing is not like the music industry where the more independently you do something, the cooler you are. So um, It's actually the reverse. It's the reverse, yeah. Um, but I think in, in, other, in almost all other industries, when you do something independently, you're presumed to have sort of greater levels of artistic integrity and, um, and your art is somehow perceived as being more pure. Um, and when you go commercial, you're selling out. Whereas um, with books, I think we, perhaps because we think of books as having authority, we want to feel like they've gone through a gate and been bestowed, this is a book by someone else. Speaking of gatekeepers, you were on the ABC's The Book Club. Yeah. What, what was an, that experience like? That was an amazing experience. I felt really honoured to be on that show because I, I know that it can be quite rare for them to have genre authors kind of speaking on that show. So it felt really great to be part of the dialogue, of the constant ongoing dialogue that is literature and have my book be part of that as well. Was there any sense that, of surprise on their part that genre authors are capable of actually having <laughs> literary conversations? No. Because as far as I know, um, romance authors wise, it's just, it's only been yourself who has been there and Anne Gracie. Yeah, right. N no. And, you know, that had been my impression going in that, um, that, that, I, that I might find it that it felt like a closed room or a closed off space. But actually they're very welcoming and also really seemed like they wanted to open the show up to outside influences. So they talked a lot about being excited about YA or genre fiction and so on. So um, yeah, it's possible that the desire is there and maybe we'll see more genre authors on the show in the future. We can only hope. We can we, hope when you were invited the second time, yeah. like, oh my God, <laughs> it's a revolution. <laughs>
<laughs> now, I also have a very important reader question. When it comes to who is the biggest, most loyal, most original CS Pacat fan, which version of your work must somebody show in order to prove their credentials? Um, wow. Uh, so I'm always delighted when people show me um, the original self-pub uh, with the white covers. The shiny white covers, not the matte white covers. Shiny, not matte. Yeah, Take but, note, readers. But if to be a true Captive Prince hipster, um, <laughs> I was just delighted and amazed at one Comic-Con where someone actually had a printout of the original online serial wow. that they had printed out and had bound for their own reading pleasure back when it was a serial online. So... Wow, that's, that's the gold standard. <laughs> that's the gold standard. Whoever that reader is, is you're going to have to beat that. Um, who were the original people who first commented on your work? Do you still are you still in touch with those readers? Yeah, I am still in touch with some of them. Um, yes, uh, I I still remember um, the first comment that I ever received. I think the first chapter that I ever posted received like three comments and I treasured every single one of them. <laughs> and, um, and then uh, there was a really kind of devoted community that formed up around Captive Prince. It was still quite underground, so I think we, we all felt a sense of almost like family and we'd all gather together every time a chapter came out. And um, I've actually commemorated the names of all of those early commenters in the back of King's Rising, if anyone is curious. Mm. Um, or if anyone's listening from those early days and doesn't realise that, go and check out King's Rising and you might find your name in the you back. You need to buy that edition as well yeah. as your oh gold gosh. standard edition. <laughs> or just go to the bookshop and take a photo of your name in the yeah, back. Yeah, well, that's yeah, fine. that's true. Um, <laughs> actually, or you order it in for your library and request it so that you will have library copies so yeah. that you also get library of royalties and take it out often so that they don't take it out of circulation. <laughs> These are the ways that we um, support our support local books. authors. Yep. <laughs> um, um, but the first comment that I received on Captive Prince that I still remember to this day was, oh, interesting, exclamation mark. <laughs> but then I bet you were like, yay, someone No, I reread that comment about a thousand times. <laughs> like, and I was so mean? happy that they thought it was interesting. No, <laughs> I just took it as a compliment. <laughs> because the beginning of Captain Prince, I mean, did that change much from the original? No, very little changed between serial format and publication. A few of the names changed just to make the world feel more internally consistent. But nothing changed structurally, no major scenes or anything changed. I mean, that just makes it even more amazing. But that, I remember when I read that first scene, it was just so full on. And you're like, oh my God, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and like, I could not have read that in serial form. I would have punched my computer or something like I don't think I could have handled because you're so good at the tension as well how hard is that to write mm, I guess writing it in serial form and because I am such a slow writer the serialization ran for about three years so so in a sense each chapter had to kind of like hook a reader and keep them coming back for three years which is not easy to do necessarily um, so there is quite a strong page turning sense uh, throughout the, the books I think yeah it's, it's it can be difficult to do that was technically challenging what what would you say to readers who really want more smutty times between <laughs> your characters between Damon and Laurent um I would say that 
um, they're free to imagine as many um, smutty scenarios <laughs> as they like. <laughs> Have you read fan fiction about your work? Um, I can't read fan fiction, unfortunately, okay. because of copyright reasons. Yeah, okay, fair um, I would love to be able to read it. Um, but what about fan art? I can look less... at fan art, yeah, and uh, it's amazing. Everyone is so talented, yeah. Have you had any, have you seen any that really closely resemble how you see your characters in your head? Yeah, quite, quite a few of them. Um, I feel like that everyone sort of seems to have agreed on like a universal Laurent and then there's many different types of daemons. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, apart from hair length, Laurent is generally the same across fan art. Is there, um, I should rephrase that in a different way, are there interpretations of the characters that have just really surprised you in a good way? Uh, yes. I think the great thing about fan art is that people will seize on one aspect or another of the character and then you'll see that single aspect slightly exaggerated in the fan art. So there's all these, these, ver these slightly pushed versions, pushed in different directions. Is there a fan art of The Captive Prince that involves baking? Because there seems to be a baking fixation. I don't know That's where amazing. I, that I, don't know. I don't know if I've seen either, any that involves baking, but I would love to. All right. If you have... <laughs> drawn fan art of the captive prince involving baked goods please send your links you <laughs> and I didn't mean that to sound dirty but it kind of did <laughs> that's awesome um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the cult of the author which is mm. um, a concept that has sort of cropped up in recent years what how do you feel as an author whose work people sort of present to you as something that has changed their lives or that means so much to them. Mm. Yeah, it's really amazing and quite a privileged position to be in. I think I, f I feel in two ways about it. Um, I can enjoy, um, as I said earlier, I can, I can really enjoy the aspect of things that is like being part of the conversation and, and, and being part of the wider conversation about books and literature and being there to kind of help evolve art, our art in a certain direction. That part's very exciting to me. Um, I think there's an aspect of um, cult of the author where um, readers will really look to the author to kind of interpret the truth of the book for them. So I often get asked questions like exactly what does this mean or can you tell us something outside of the text that's true about the characters. Um, whereas I really believe that the book exists in sort of a, the space between the book and the reader and that the, the reader's version is the true version and I can't interpret the book for other people. So sometimes I, f I feel a little bit as though uh, readers look for the truth in the wrong place. <laughs> they should be looking inside themselves instead of to me. In some ways I feel like the way you write is very much instinctive. Do you often stand back from your work and look at what you've done and surprise yourself? No, it's the opposite, actually. I've no instinct for writing, and everything that I do is very, uh, uh, how can I say, constructed. So I'm not one of those authors that holds the story instinctively within them. Sometimes I feel as though I hold nothing within me, and I have to make a story out of nothing. And when writing, every now and again, I guess at my lowest moments, I'll feel like, why can't someone else just tell me the story? <laughs> why can't this story come externally? I think that's why I'm a reader. <laughs> right. I'm a writer. Um, and so I don't get surprised because I build the story slowly by a kind of a process of, of 
painstaking and meticulous planning. What's the longest time that you've spent fixing or writing a sentence? <laughs> um, See, the fact that you have to think about this <laughs> says a, volumes. That can be quite a long time. I think four months. Um, wow. Do you remember which part of the story I do story remember which part of the story it was. So it was the sex scene in Prince's Gambit. And that book really pivots on that sex scene. So there is like, uh, there's a real transition that happens in that scene after the first sort of sexual encounter and before the two characters actually have sex. And, uh, and uh, one of the characters, uh, Laurent pushes Damon down onto the bed and then, um, how can I say, Damon climaxes and then the second sex scene begins. And the moment between the two sex scenes is like a transition, I guess, between kind of like Laurent's mental state, his mental journey, one way of being for him, and then kind of more of, a, of, of Damon's kind of sexuality and Laurent choosing a different way of being. And that pivot was so crucial that finding the line on which that scene could pivot was just took ages, it took four months. And then the line was actually the word adequate. <laughs> that was the solution, but it took me four months to get to. So a true fan now will have a mug that just says adequate. adequate yeah. And everyone will know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell us a bit about what you're going to be up to this year and where we can expect to see you. Gosh, I'm going to be, they'll have a couple of appearances across Australia this year, um, but none of them are quite announced yet. So all I can really say is like, look out um, on my webpage or sign up to the newsletter for announcements. But I should be having appearances and signings um, in Melbourne and in Sydney and very possibly in one or two other cities as well. Excellent. And finally, what books are you reading now? Reading and enjoying. Um, reading and enjoying. I have just finished, um, oh gosh, so many. Well, uh, I'm reading a lot of non-fiction about fencing at the moment. Is so, that a hint as to the, either the YA or the secret might, project? That might be a hint. Um, and I've just finished an amazing book that traces the history of fencing called By the Sword. And um, I highly recommend that for anyone who is interested in um, sword play and or... Not a euphemism. <laughs> no, and or um, historical research. And then in terms of fiction... Um, I just reread, um, this is not romancy at all, but I just reread A Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And I was surprised how relevant uh, that book is to the kind of times we are living through right now. That's all we have time for in this episode. Many thanks to our tireless audio producer, Rudy Bremer. You can find the show notes at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. Just click on episode 37. If you have any feedback or suggestions, you can send me a tweet at bookthingo or send an email to podcast at bookthingo.com.au. Thank you to everyone who commented on our Sydney Writers Festival recap, which was episode 35. On Twitter, DM commented that it was an excellent episode. Thank you very much. DM has her own podcast called Bookish Friends, which you should totally check out, especially if you love YA fiction. Nora said that the episodes where you all are just being goofy in a room together are always my favourite. Those are also my favourite to record, even though Rudy and Gabby like to pick on me like the mean girls that they are. Ainsley said that the last podcast was very fancy 
and I hope so, I think we should aim to be fancy in every episode. On the blog, Aztec Lady left a lovely comment. She said, I love many things about your podcast, but one of the things you do that squeeze my heart every time in the best possible way is to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of whatever land you are when recording them. Thank you for everything that all of you do for genre romance and its readers. Thank you, Aztec Lady, for your kind words. And thanks to all of you, our listeners, for supporting the show. It really means so much to us. In the next episode, I chat with Amber Barden, who is part of the relatively new, younger crop of Australian authors who write romance fiction. We get into some very interesting topics on stereotypes in romance and of romance. Until then, I hope you have a fabulous fortnight of reading. <laughs>